0: Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence once again to seek your face, to implore you to open your word to us and to open our hearts to you and your word.
1: I thank you for what you have been doing this morning here in our midst the fellowship
0: and the prayers that have already been offered for the prayers that reflect our heart to be concerned for those around us.
1: Thank you for the study that we're going to be looking at tonight with Larry. Now for the opportunity to take a few moments and look
0: at a couple that we are familiar with by name, Willa and Priscilla, and to Ask that you would speak to
1: us, meeting us uh, at the point of our need, informing us more
0: to the image of Christ. Thank you that you have, throughout history, had your people and uh, that they have have a place, if you will, in your
1: kingdom and they have contributed to your work, to your glory. And I pray that you would help us in looking at some others
0: that we might profit from and emulate from their sacrifice and their work. And pray that you would make us effective image bearers of the Savior, that we would be instruments used of you
1: to exalt and magnify our blessed Lord. We pray that he would be the one that you would see here this morning. I don't know who's going to be listening in on by way of internet, but we pray for everyone that's on the sound of my voice, that you would use this word and this message to exalt Jesus Christ, and doing that would touch our lives and make us instruments for his book. We ask this in his name, with thanksgiving. Well, in Second Timothy chapter four, in the verses nine through twenty-two, we are looking at Paul's concluding words to Timothy in his letters. He's writing from prison to Timothy, and he has been mentioning a number of individuals that his life has touched. And in doing that, we have kind of gathered them together, try to organize them a little bit, and just going through them primarily just to see the different kinds of individuals and different kinds of people that cross paths and the people that come to mind. And so we have done that. We've looked at those that we might call associates faithful, and we had a number of those individuals that we looked at. Then we looked at uh, one individual that you would say was, was kind of unfaithful. His name was Demos. He's the one that I told you I most closely identified with insofar as far as Seeing one who loved the world and sees to be distracted with the love of the world. Then we looked at associates that were restored and particularly we were looking at Mark and looking at his life. And then the last time we were looking at uh, one that was considered to be an enemy of the Lord's work, Alexander, and uh, enemy of Paul, and we looked at his life and uh, we don't want to emulate him but we want to learn from him now we come to a group that I've just simply called his friends, associates that are friends or former associates that are friends and we're looking at verse 19 so let me look at 2nd um, Timothy chapter 4 in verse 19 it says Greet the son of Aquila, and the household of Ponosophilus Rasmus remained in Corinth and Trophimus, I left say Edmeletus, make every effort to come before winter. Publius greets you also, Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. We're going to look at Priscillian and Quilich for a little while. You're familiar with them, and uh, in order to do that, we probably ought to take our Bibles and turn over to the Book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 18. I'm going to cover a little bit more than just the verse that deals with Solomon and Nicola because they are instrumental in supporting Paul and uh, helping him in the ministry. So we want to look at that as well briefly to get a picture of what is going on. But let's turn over to Acts chapter 18. And Acts chapter 18, Acts 17 is where Paul is on. Mars Hill Areopagus, and he's preaching to the philosophical crowd there, and near the end of his message, a lot of those uh, sophisticated speakers are used to, uh, or used to sophisticated speakers, and people that are great orators, and that's what they pride themselves in, and here's Paul telling them about the truth of God, and the resurrection, and so on and so forth. They begin near the end of this to kind of yawn, and look at their watch, and start closing their books up, and so Paul concludes there with them. There are a few that respond. But verse eight, verse 1 of 18 says, after these things, so this is what has just taken place. Paul is just speaking to Marcel with Herodotus. And after these things, um, it says, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, Having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and they were working for by trade they were tent makers. Just think about this now. Let me, first of all, I guess since we're talking about Corinth, uh, we might just mention a little bit about Corinth. If you're familiar with the the geography of Italy and Greece. You know, Greece is kind of a peninsula that sticks down at the bottom part of the top part. You come down from Macedonia, then through Greece, and the bottom part is that Achaia. It's kind of almost an island. There's a little bitty land bridge that crosses over. Um, If you can envision in your mind an hourglass where you have all the sand at the top part of the hourglass falling down through a very narrow, Orphos down to the bottom part, that's kind of what Corinth was. Corinth was a city and it actually had two seaports, one on each side because it was water on both sides, and there was a small land bridge that crossed over. It. it was like a narrow isthmus and it joined the peninsula of the Polybenetians to Achaia to the north. The land, there was a land and trade moving north and south through the city of Corinth. Uh, and there was a sea trade that would go from east to west. And it would come in by one side of the city on the seaport, it would cross over through the city and come out the other side. And they would sometimes, in fact, frequently carry all their cargo and stuff uh, by way of car across that little narrow bridge to the other side, a little bit a little different ship, and take off if they were carrying cargo because it was quicker and safer than going all the way down to the bottom of Achaia. So, carts. To make a long story short, Corinth was a busy city, and uh, it it was a city that was on the southern tip, as I said, of Polynesia, and it was a peninsula. It was dangerous to travel around it. It was a city that has an interesting history. I found out that in the uh, 146 BC, the Romans actually demolished the city, but because of the strategic location of it, that city was not really permitted to die, that all the trade and stuff going through it built it back up. It was a city, I guess the best illustration of trying to find a a parallel would be Las Vegas today, because uh, it was very glamorous in that sense. There was a lot of money, a lot of trade, a lot of activity, and there was a lot of sin that took place in the city, because you had such a, a flow of traffic going through it. Had a, there was a, a lot of licentious living. They, it was a center for the worship of, of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Um, there was a, a temple there and they had a, a thousand temple priestess that were prostitutes, ritual prostitutes that would come every night down to the city to uh, practice their trade. So it was, a, it was a wicked city, it was a vile city, it was a prosperous city, It was a lot of traffic going on. Um, we it's kind of hard maybe for us to think back in those early New Testament days and think of it as a sophisticated society. But there was a lot of money, and a lot of wealth, and a lot of prestige there, and a lot of violence, a lot of, of uh, crooked things going on. As you can imagine, we'd like it would be in Las Vegas. <clears throat> but in the middle of that was this church, this little group of believers uh, who loved the Savior.
0: Thinking about that, when you have Christians that are huddled together in such a vile
1: society with all that pressure on the outside, a lot of times it tends to drive the real believers closer together. You understand know what I'm saying? That the fellowship is sweeter. I think that will happen in our day as well. I think that, that we'll see as we see uh, more wickedness, more violence, uh, not just the the, the, the uh, Covid, I don't. I don't think that's going to really enter into it. I think a lot of other stuff is going to get even worse than that. More, more pressure, probably response from the government to quell the violence is going to become um, more of a police state, perhaps, to try to <clears throat> maintain peace. And I think the church is going to be forced to kind of huddle together to find their rest, their 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 uh, security uh, to be rescued from this and to kind of retreat together more and more. I think that the, the, uh, it usually is that kind of pressure causes the people to look more and more to the Lord's coming and to his kingdom and to find greater security in him and his word. How do we live in those kinds of pagan days? Two verses came to mind, there many verses, but one of them was in Matthew 18. I'll read it to you. It's taken from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is is saying, you, talking about to believers, you are the salt of the earth. Salt being that which is a preservative, that which brings flavor, that which gives um, uh, maybe spice, if you will, to what would be ordinary bland. He says, you are the salt, the preservative, the flavor of life, of the earth. But salt that becomes tasteless, if salt loses its flavor, its ability to be salty... Uh, it can't be made salty again. It's not any good. So what he's saying is that we are believers. We are to be salt of the earth. We are to be salty. We are to uh, permeate society so that we foster a preservative error because of our relationship with the Lord. But if you're not salty, how can you be salty again? You're no longer any good for anything except to be thrown out Trampled on the foot just to be thrown out, put in the driveway, maybe give a little, a space, kind of assault a little bit of walking area or whatever like that. Otherwise, it's useless. And then he says the same thing about light. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light to put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light all in the house. You're the light of the world. You should be giving light. Don't hide your light, but give light.
0: Let your light shine before men in such a way, not that they see your light, but that they see your good works.
1: And then glorify not you, but your Father in heaven. Amen. And that, so this is how, this is what he's telling us. He's saying, let us do that. He says in Philippians, do all things without groaning, complaining, so that, they will, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. Prove yourself to be innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We can live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, but we need in the midst of that to make sure that we're living for Christ. You see, living for him, putting him first, proving yourselves to be children of God above reproach, right in the middle of what would otherwise be a crooked and perverse generation, among which you appear as light's in the world. So if you are living for Christ in the midst of a crooked person, you can stand out. There is a sense perhaps in which that that contrast will bring some degree of persecution with some because you'll make them feel guilty, but that's okay. Jesus said, if men persecute you and say all manner of things falsely about you for my sake, rejoice, be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Sometimes that happened that to Paul. Paul was telling Timothy that, that could happen to him as well. So here's his city, Corinth, okay. And it's a vile city. Uh, it's a place where there's this, this practice of immorality and immoral living. And huddled in that city was this church, this fellowship of people that come together. Paul first met them not in a home but in a synagogue. And in the synagogue, frequently people would sit in groups according to their vocation. So the, the printers were over here, and whatever. And I, I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that that's probably how Paul got to know them as tent makers. They were both involved in in that uh, uh, that business of, of being a tent maker or whatever. And uh, that I think they they got to be Paul became familiar with them because of them sitting together in, in the synagogue, and uh, Obviously, there was this relationship with the Lord. Paul was not usually very quiet about these things. He was very vocal about these things. And it didn't take long for their fellowship uh, to become close-knit. And they invited him to come and stay with him. They invited him to to live with them in the house and stuff like that. And uh, that's that's uh, that speaks a lot, I think, about Christian fellowship. And about the coming together, uh, it would, the pressure would drive them to to uh, be together. The pressure would drive them to have fellowship together, to love one another, support one another, to encourage one another more and more as they were living in this uh, kind of a wretched city. And you know what? We we have that same thing here. We have that. We don't really have a lot of persecutions going on outside there, but the fellowship that I enjoy with you guys. Is really even closer many times than the fellowship I have with my sisters, and I love my sisters very much, but they don't know the Lord, and so the fellowship we have here is closer many times, and it just drives us closer together, mm-hmm. and uh, that's I think that's sort of what it was with with Priscilla and Aquila, and Corinth. Paul met them. Uh, she was she was Aquila was called a Jew, and she was said to be from Pontius, uh, which is a province in Asia Minor, which is south of the Black Sea. And she was displaced uh, from Rome because of an edict from Claudius. Um, the text said all the Jews were, were instructed to leave Rome, and so they had to leave because of their they were Jews. There was a, a degree of anti-Semitism going on at that time, during that period of time. Um, and that well, we don't like to talk about it. It, it did happen. Um, i just trying to, read several verses now. In Acts chapter 16, remember the slave girl that was following Paul and kept saying, these men are preaching the, the gospel of, of Christ and so on and so forth, it was Paul and Silas and this girl was, was making this announcement and she was bringing her match with a lot of money and um, Paul got irritated about that. And um, so he told them in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her for the spirit. And he did that very moment. And when her master saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace and said, These men have brought our city into confusion being Jews. Now that's what I'm trying to point out here is that they were against them and they accused them. Of being Jews, which was sort of like uh, giving them an the excuse to throw them in prison. You see what I mean? So there was, there was that that air in that time of somewhat, somewhat of a, a disdain for the Jewish community and Christian community too, but particularly in this Jewish community. And so here is this this guy Claudius. And he is having all of the Jews dispelled or kicked out, if you will, of Rome. And so Aquila and Priscilla uh, come to Corinth to apply their trade. That does also remind us of something else, doesn't it? And that is that sometimes life is not always fair. Many times things happen and we could liken that. We have good illustrations now with the virus that's going on and businesses that have good businesses, businesses that are above board, as far as I know, that have had to close down and close their doors because they they can't deal with this and stuff like that, and a lot of things that happened. And I know that the president has tried to make these things as as, um, easy as possible with some of the uh, handouts and things that have gone on, and yet it's still very difficult, very hard, and it seems like that life sometimes is not fair. But I just want to remind you of this: that God is in charge. He is in, He is sovereign, and uh, we're going to see further on into this chapter where He tells Paul, "Keep ministering because nobody's going to bother you." And God is able; He can do that any time. He doesn't do it very often. Paul has suffered a lot, but there are times when He does that. And uh, so, God is sovereign, and He is able. To control even the good things and the bad things that happen come our way, and uh, we can, I think, and I know you can too, take comfort in the fact of knowing that if it comes our way and it seems to be bad, it comes filtered through His permissive will, He is in charge. He can stop if we wanted to. If He doesn't, then we know that He has a purpose. I think that everything that happens to us that we can interpret as being bad or whatever James says, count it joy because you know that that, the testing of your faith is working patience, it's working endurance, it's helping you to grow. We know that. It It may not be turning out right now the way that I want it. In fact, a lot of times it does not. It seems this is not a very nice thing to say about the Lord, but it seems like a lot of times he does things in a way that I don't like to show me that his way is best and not mine. And that is true. We know that. We know that up here. So we apply that to our knowledge of the Lord. So here is Pasilla and They meet Paul. And uh, we don't know if they were Christians before they met Paul. um, Because Paul stayed there with them for this extended period of time, I am certain that Paul had a lot of ministry in their lives. And later on, we're going to see where they had some ministry with Apollos and Alexandrian. Uh, Jew in Alexandra, and, and uh, they instructed him and helped him with his preaching. And so we know that they had some good maturity and some good growth, and I attribute a lot of that to this time that they spent there taking care of and providing uh, a place of lodging for Paul. You see what I'm saying? That they did that. And so We'll get to that, but I'm just saying here that um, here is here is a Paul, uh, and Nicola in the uh, In Romans 16, 33 and 4, Paul closes that letter. He writes it from Corinth and he's writing to the Romans, and he closes that letter by saying, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my advice risk their own necks. So Paul acknowledges there that Priscilla and Aquila have served him, and they have risked their lives, uh, put a lot on the line to help him. So here's this couple that uh, he met there that out of Rome, mistreated by uh, the government, if you will. They come to Corinth. They are trying to settle down. They're trying to apply their trade. They meet Paul in the synagogue, and Paul um, stays with them. They begin to really grow in that relationship with the Lord and minister. Paul is there for, I I think, a pretty extended period of time. why, several times Priscilla's name is mentioned before Aquila's, and that has created some raised eyebrows. That was not the common practice. We don't know why, other than the possibility that she was from a noble family background. Uh, I know from what experience, my wife was, had a higher education. And I think she's much smarter than I am. I can hear an amen to that. I'm much better looking than I am. And a lot of times they mm-hmm. say, Elaine and here rather than Peter Elaine. She is... She's a sweetheart. I'd like to have her back so that we can do that more often. And so God knows what He's doing. He never makes mistakes. Never makes mistakes. But that—that is um, whatever it is. uh, They were involved in the ministry there with Paul and um, the—the term that's translated there, tent maker, by the way, can also be translated. Uh, leather worker. that uh, He was he was involved in cutting leather pieces of leather and things of that nature. It could be either one, uh, but it is um, it is a trade. It is a it is a good trade to be involved in, in cutting leather, working with leather, working with tents, working with things of that nature. Um, in that particular, in the, tra- in the trade, in that day, it was common practice for the The workshop for the leather workers and people that did those kinds of things would be downstairs. The living quarters would be upstairs, and that would probably be the case with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. We also know from... um I should
0: bring the first down, but I didn't... give
1: you the reference. Yeah, for, we also know from First Corinthians 16, 19 that eventually um, Paul writing to the church said to, to said greetings of and to them and said that they greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house so that we know that eventually they had a church literally meeting in their house so they had a pretty good size place. And uh, they, they did pretty well. And so I, we, if we were following the typical way that things were done, the workshop would be downstairs, the living quarters would be upstairs, where the uh, church would meet, I don't know, but they met in the house. That was later on. But these, this couple was a couple that put in a lot of, of work, a lot of time, a lot of prayer, a lot of support. And... Uh, they're, they're, the work of tent making may seem to be a secular kind of work as opposed to Paul's preaching. But vocation, whatever the vocation is that you have, if God has given you that vocation, is sacred. And you want to do it as unto the Lord, whatever it is. And that's tent making, be uh, working at Lowe's, be praying, um, whatever, studying, even, believe it or not, playing golf can be a, a, a work surrender of calling that God uses you in that to be a good witness and a good testimony for him. We want to do that. We want to do it with all our might. We want to do it in a way that honors him. And uh, so this this, um, ministry that he had there and that they had was a good ministry and it was being used of the Lord and uh, in that time Paul was using the time he had with them to help disciple them and help teach them and help them to grow so this is a good good illustration of a couple running uh, in their life into the ministry of Paul how God brings them together how they are able to stay together and work how he is able to teach them and encourage them and uh, it says in verse uh, 18 then Silas and Timothy, Come down. This is Acts eighteen verse five. Um, Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia, and when they do, Paul is able to devote himself exclusively to preaching. Before that, he was spending a lot of time working with them, tent making, and other things, preaching. But he was doing; he was sharing the, the burden. But evidently, when uh, the Timothy, Silas, and Timothy come down, they they. Uh, able to bring some financial aid and help for him as well. And uh, also the companionship and the fellowship and the encouragement, I'm sure, would be a large encouragement as well. And so he's able to devote more of his time to the ministry of preaching and teaching, which to me shows the real passion of his heart. I don't think I would accuse Paul of being lazy and not wanting to work. But I do think that he had his priorities and that he knew what God called him to do. And so when he was able to do that, before he didn't, he spent time with them, he worked together in that trade, which I think is commendable. But when the Lord opened that door and was able to go full-time to that, he did. And uh, that's, that's a good thing for him to do that. Um, and his message um, was he was preaching Jesus is the Messiah. Which is a message that was very typical. I mean, and the Messiah means anointed. Jesus is the name for the historical incarnate second person of the Trinity who came, and so this man who came was born of a virgin there in Bethlehem. Is God's anointed? Is God's Messiah? And uh, that's his message, and that's what he was he was uh, preaching. And the ministry of Apollos and Aquila. Uh, And the work, the support is enabling Paul to do that. Paul um, is able to do that because to a large degree he's successful in that because of their support and their help as well. There is uh, Jewish opposition that is seen
0: to Paul's ministry, um, to the gospel. And um, it says in verse...
1: Verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began to devote himself completely to the word. Uh, Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments. He said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. I think when he said that, your blood be on your own heads. He's giving reference to a passage in Ezekiel in the Old Testament. I was thinking about this. In the passage in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33, 1 through 7, uh, the, uh, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and said, Son of man, speak. This is 30 th- Ezekiel 33, verse 1 through 7. Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land and all the people of the land take one man from among them and make him a watchman, he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword come, th- th- comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. So that if the watchman gives warning of danger that's coming and the people in the city, somebody hears that warning, but he doesn't pay attention to it and he, and he ends up suffering or getting killed or his family getting killed or whatever is suffering his blood is on his own head. He heard the warning, and he didn't heed it. But, he goes on to say in that passage, if the watchman sees it coming, but he doesn't tell the people, doesn't warn them, and the enemy comes in, and he wrecks havoc, destruction upon the people, and kills them. He says, but the watchman didn't warn them, I'm going to hold the watchman, the blood of this, is going to be on his hands, because he knew about it, but he didn't warn them. And that's kind of the picture of what what, um, what, Paul is saying here, he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean I was. I have told you. I've given you warning and I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He said that several times. And so here's Paul. He, he goes on to say he shakes out his garments. Um, your blood be on your own heads. It's your own responsibility. And so in verse 7 it says, he left from there, went to the house of a man named Titus Justice. This is back in Acts 18. Titus Justice was a. And reason, the reason I'm reading this is to get an idea of the ministry of Paul, which existed while he was staying at the house of well, Aquila and Said they went there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justice. This is for worship. He was in the synagogue. They went to the synagogue to the house of a man named Titus Justice to worship God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Uh, Crispus, the keeper, uh, the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now that's a quick reading. But that involves day after day of Paul ministering. That involves going from, first of all, from one place and then moving over and meeting another place and getting things together. We've done it about three weeks now. And uh, it involves a lot of activity, a lot of, um, perhaps maybe even some degree of confusion, and yet coming together and people responding. And uh, there is that, there is that, there is that fruit says many of the Corinthians began to hear and they were believing and being baptized. And the baptism service is always open to the public, people could see. And so it's right next to the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue. So you see here is a picture of the ministry that is spreading and how it's beginning to take root. And, uh, One of the big reasons why it's as successful as it is is because Paul is able to reside and find support from this family that he's staying with, the and they're providing that help and that support for him. It's really important uh, the support that you said we have. We take money for missions and stuff like that, and we take our little fifty-dollar check. It's not going to help a lot, but ours, as the Lord sovereignly oversees that with hundreds of others, makes a big difference in ministry. So
0: The abundant fruit that was there came from the support. Um, and Paul knew that. And he,
1: he knew that a lot of his ministry was the result. And that's why one of the reasons they remained friends
0: so long, he knew that it was a result of that and they risked a lot to, to try to help him. There were some threatening circumstances, perhaps um,
1: The Lord, the Lord had to urge Paul to keep on ministering in, in, uh, in Corinth. The Lord said to Paul, verse 9, in the night vision, do not be afraid any longer. Now that says something too. It. it says there in this area, because of the opposition and because of the Jewish locality beginning next to the synagogue and all this locality, there was uh, some pretty strong uh, Jewish uh, undertow and he knew, he was, he was, it said he was afraid. He said, "You don't have to be afraid any longer. You can stop being afraid." So now here's another illustration, if I may use that, of God's sovereignty. Many times Paul suffered at the hands of uh, the Jewish community, but in this one instance, God said, "I'm not going to let them hurt you. You're going to be protected. You stay in this city. I have many people in this city that, you, that I want you to minister to. So you stay here," and so. um, the Lord said to Paul, by the night vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And I have many people in this city, and he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is a this is kind of a critical point um, in this ministry. Uh, because uh, it goes on to say, verse 12, Galileo. Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and and brought him before the judgment seat. They raised up against Paul and they brought him before the judge. That's the place where you would get the civil court, so to speak. And they were saying, this man uh, persuades men to worship God, which is contrary to law. And that idea of or contrary to law, was to be contrary primarily to Roman law because the Roman law uh, didn't permit, they, they didn't like new religions. They wanted things to be kind of as they'd always been. And so they're just accusing him contrary to to Roman law. And so that's what they're saying. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, just about ready to speak, Gallio said, if it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. And what's that said. It says this Roman guy here, this Roman council, who does have an air of anti-Semitism, is irritated with these Jews who kept coming up there and, and uh, irritating him. And he's not going to listen to them, and he's kind of pushing them away. In fact, he goes on to say, um, uh, he said, If there were questions about words and names of your own law, and look after them yourselves, I am unwilling to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, drove them away the soldiers drove them away, and they took hold of Sassanese, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. So here's this, here's this critical point. If uh, Galileo had um, had uh, listened to that and had given in to that, it would have been a turnaround. It would have been probably a persecution against the church. But in this case, he stood up for the church against the Jews, and it, it stopped that and reversed that whole trend. So it was it a was kind of a turning point there. God's hand was in it. He's in charge. He can change if he wanted to. He, he changed Galileo. He left him there. He, he made that uh, statement, that commitment, that direction that he had. And so he drove them
0: away. Um, verse 18. Paul, having remained there many days, nobody can see him.
1: Yeah, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren, and put out the sea. Here he is uh, in Corinth, and he, he puts out the sea. He's, he's going across the, the uh, Aegean Sea to Ephesus.
0: And with him, he takes Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus. They were living in, in Corinth, and now he
1: takes them, and they have a home there. They have a place that they're meeting, and he takes them to the Ephesus. And uh, by the way, I'm not sure if the church that they had there was in Corinth or was it in, in uh, Ephesus. I should go back and research that. I'm not sure. But I know that they did have a church in the home. And I know that uh, he took them with him. And if he, if Paul took these two guys who who were in the of the church with him and left, it means that he knew there was leadership already in the church. And the church was being started beginning to become established and somewhat growing. Probably was meeting. I don't know if it was in their home now or not, but it was probably meeting in home and it was established. And so he was, there's a lot involved in packing up, even just the, your stuff and moving everything from one place owned by, by own ship all the way across the GNC to Ephesus. Ephesus was another major, major city. And yet there's, a, and so we read a lot into that. It. It's just a quick verse, but it's a lot of involvement, a lot of work, a lot of getting up early, a lot of packing, a lot of pulling things together. Um, life is a lot harder when you live it than it is when you write it sometimes. And so it, it was a lot, of, a lot of work, a lot of involvement in that with them. Um, the actual length of Paul's stay in Corinth is a little bit confusing. we are not sure that 18 months begins with the first vision, but whatever. And we know that he was here. The only place he stayed longer uh, than in Corinth was at Ephesus. He stayed at Ephesus longer. But anyway, it says they left, came to Ephesus and left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. They asked him to stay for a longer period of time, but he didn't consent because he was were leaving, uh, taking leave of them. And he said, I'll return again, if God wills. And so he set sail for Ephesus. And um, when he had landed at Caesarea, uh, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch, went up and he's up to Jerusalem, and then back down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left successfully through the Galatian region and Pamphylia and strengthening the disciples. Now it's interesting that he took um, Priscilla and Aquila with him. Um, and we read about Priscilla and Aquila further on uh, in verse 24. There was a Jew named Apollos. He was an Alexandrian by birth. Uh, he was an elegant man he came to Ephesus. This is now there in Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was, was a strong speaker. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. And he was speaking and teaching accurately the things of concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So there was some incompleteness in this complete understanding of what Jesus had come to do and the baptism and the work of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now this says two things. that It says, number one, that they knew something of the scriptures, they knew something of the truth about the gospel. And it also says something that, that this guy, this mighty speaker, was humble enough to listen to them and learn and grow. And that's a good thing. Sometimes we can get I'm not going to give you stories, but I've heard of preachers and sometimes things like this where we get somebody corrects us and we get mad and we try to defend ourselves and we just make matters worse and worse and worse. And this is this guy, he was willing to listen and uh, he would learn the way of God more accurately. And when they wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he would greatly help those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, Demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is Christ. So Paul, Paul accompanied Paul as far as Ephesus. Evidently, Silas, Timothy, and Silas remained in Macedonia in the chaos, the church there.
0: And so the point
1: is, and I'll stop there. We 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 see them. Here's this couple. They meet Paul. They have a similar Background, they share the faith there in the synagogue. The pressure of the city and everything drives the fellowship together. They invite Paul to stay with them at their house. They help support him, they help provide for him. Paul has a good ministry there, both first at the synagogue and then at the home next to the synagogue. There are many that are baptized. The work is growing on. Eventually, Paul is going back, he goes to Ephesus, he takes that couple with him. they were valuable to him if he did that, and uh, that's a lot of a lot of, uh, and that's not an easy thing to do. He takes it with him back to Ephesus, and they have a minister there at Ephesus. They are able to instruct this guy and, and Alexandria, this, this Jew from Alexandria, and uh, they are, he has a real ministry. He then goes around and does a lot of speaking, and a large part of his success is due to the work of, of Priscilla and Aquila in instructing him and helping. And so, this couple, which he just mentions there in, in our text, um, some Greek Priscilla, and Aquila, that's all he says. Uh, this couple has had a, a very profound support system behind him for a, quite a while. And so, that background information is important to him. And all of us have it, don't we? We have friends that we've known that have been instrumental in our lives. Many of us talk about things like Warner. We'll talk about Warner and the, the experience that we've had with Warner and the things that he has done, the lessons that we have learned from him. Or we'll talk about uh, somebody else that we knew and uh, what they did. I remember Warner used to talk about this guy that first shared the gospel with him in the church and got and put him in some in teaching in Southern School class. We have that kind of background information, and uh, there's a lot of of, of uh, depth under the tip of the iceberg. There's just a little tip on the iceberg. Greek sort of quote, but underneath that is a lot of background, a lot of support, a lot of work, and uh, that influence and that support one day in heaven will come out. We'll have a chance to see that. We'll have a chance to talk about that. We'll remember those things. I'm, I'm anxious. There's a lot of people I'm anxious to meet and talk to in heaven. Not people necessarily only that I've known, but people that are in the scriptures that there's a lot of things that don't come out. Job is one that I really want to feel bad to meet and sit down and talk with. Um, and see the things, Daniel's another one, Paul's another one. Um, then we'll have unlimited time, we'll have plenty of time to unfold. So, anyway. And just think about the fellowship
2: that we have with federal believers that, that we don't have never met.
1: Amen. That's one reason why I try to get you to come to this Gideon uh, banquets because you meet other believers in the area and realize that we're not the only ones here. Mm-hmm. And
2: the paper to too. You know what I really enjoy more than talking with people like that is hearing two people get together, and just being in the yep, yeah. and, yeah. and listening. You yeah. uh, know, I, I enjoy that more than actually talking because you can learn you yeah. learn a lot more by listening than you can talk, especially with want and Paul. Yeah. <coughs> I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people there, I
0: enjoy. It. So I want to close in prayer
2: Father thank you again For this time we've had of Looking into your word Seeing Especially Paul And how he devoted His life To the service of you And in that, he devoted his life to the service of people. He invested his life in training and teaching people that would carry on that true gospel message. And part of that is why we're here today, because of his writing, because of the word that we have, that uh, he has carried that message on to many, many people. And and here I stand today because somebody heard his message, which has been passed on for hundreds of years. And I trust that I'm passing on that same message uh, as well. But that won't die with me or any of Mm -hmm. us. So thank you. Thank you for that privilege, Father. And thank you for your word. Thank you for your love that you have for each one of us. That you gave your only Son, your only begotten Son, that we might have Mm -hmm. life eternal. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in that. Mm -hmm. And I pray for each individual, Father, pray that you'd work in their hearts this morning, spoke to them individually as only you can do. We can present your word and then the Holy Spirit um, works from that. Thank you so much for that. And uh, we just uh, pray your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.